Welcome to the 34 Welcome to Make Matriarchy Great Again. Welcome, as you listen to the stylish sounds of matriarchy in the background. I was doing my little dance. <laughs> this is the 34 Cersei Salon, Make Matriarchy Great Again. I am Sean Marlon Newcomb, and I'm here with, as always... Don Sam Alden. Welcome, uh, everyone. And we have a very special guest today. We do, indeed. Uh, it's Max Dashu. Hi, Max. Hi, Sean. And Don, Sean and Don, Sean yeah. and Don. Yeah, we're we're a vaudeville team. It's great. <laughs> so, we are going to have a great discussion today. We're going to talk to Max. Has such a long history of studying suppressed history or history history of women, uh, women's cultures, matriculture, and we want to jump right into it and talk about it because there is so much to talk about and. Max, one thing I noticed, Max, I saw on your site, this is the 49th year of the site? Uh, actually, of this... oh, not the site, but of the archives is actually going on 51. In, I should have of course, yeah. yeah. Sites weren't around quite well. They yeah, no, were, the, the, the site government. didn't come about until like 2000, because, you know, I had to design it myself. So it was a little bit of a wow. learning curve there. <laughs> so f- 51 years, you said? Yeah, I'll be 51 this winter. Wow. That's, so that's just a different, I mean, that was an explosive time. Yeah. Then, of course, we're sort of that. So what was it we've, like? We've Could come you, back well, full circle, yeah. right? Yeah, yeah, we have, haven't we? Sean, before we dive into it, sure. mm-hmm. um, Max, could you give us your 150-word bio <laughs> to introduce yourself to, um, to our listeners? Sure. Okay, I am an independent scholar. And my whole focus is global women's history and everything that entails. So it's very intersectional, international, uh, looking at all kinds of dynamics that, you know, people think of women's history. A lot of times they think Susan B. Anthony. Right. And Mm. I'm looking at a much I'm casting a much broader net than that. And really looking at indigenous societies, trying to foreground those histories and those philosophies Mm -hmm. at um, the archaeological record. Orature, so the oral traditions as, as a uh, valid source for the human cultural record. Nice. Uh, all, all, all kinds of, so it's a very, very interdisciplinary study. Fabulous. And primarily teaching through images because oh, I discovered very early on that, you know, we have all this written record and that's really how everything was supposed to, you know, that's supposed to be the scholarly approach. But then that leaves out everything but the literate societies. And then even with those, it's the elite narratives that we have and so when you look at the iconographic record you then the women come to the fore you know when you have the ancestral mothers and you have the ancient female figurines and so many other things that really allow us to refocus our view in a much broader way you know to all of humanity and not and especially foregrounding the the female half of humanity right yes so you know that was i didn't really set out and say i'm going to assemble an archive I just began collecting these images because early on, I, I dropped out of college in 1969 because it wasn't possible to do what I'm doing there. And mm-hmm. it's even difficult now. 
Yes. Could you and, could you say a little bit about that? Like, why was it difficult? Because I've noticed certain aspects of that, like you say, even now when I see uh, yeah, scholars sure. talking about this. But what was so difficult about being able to explore this yeah. sort of thing? Academia comes out of the old uh, cathedral schools of the church in the Middle mm -hmm. Ages. Right. So it was an all-male space historically. And it remains such, completely defined by elite men, elite white men, up through the 1800s, and women gradually begin coming in, but on terms. They were always having to deal with male authority. And so the, all of the stories that are told about humanity and history all were rung through that ringer, you know, mm -hmm. strained out in certain ways. So there, there's like a very much of a doctrinal bias to academia. You are prestigious if you adhere to the approved doctrines mm. and you know like the Bering Strait theory you know it's like you were a quack if you thought that not everybody came over from Asia into the Americas across the Bering Strait yes. until the late 2000s and then all of a sudden well okay you know what there's some problems with this theory you know and it so it, it's it takes a lot to overthrow those those defined set terms Right. It's, and, it's amazing. It's almost like a religion. It's that Bering Strait theory has come up. I've seen it yeah. in a couple of different ways where people are like, well, there are issues with that. But yeah, if you question yeah. it, suddenly you're a heretic and you're. Yeah. So there are these dogmas. And so there I am, a little, you know, scholarship student, and there's all these big professors and my anthropology professors telling us, well, there are matrilineal societies, but that doesn't mean anything because all societies are male dominated. Oh, this oh. is what I mean by dogma. <laughs> You know, that did not ever have to be proven. It was on fiat. He said right. it, and everybody better believe it. And you better believe that if you write a paper that disagrees with that point of view, that they were going to grade you down. Right. You know? Yeah. And yeah. so I just said, what am I doing here in this ruling class college? You know, what? let me out of here. I'm, yeah. I'm going to just research this on my own because I, I saw how it was laid out, you know, and Harvard is a very patriarchal institution. Sure. and. So I just said, okay, look, I'm going to, I'm going to research this on my own. And the thing about it is that I knew from my brief brush with, with that, with those structures that I would have to assemble massive documentation and evidence for any point that disagreed with those doctrines. Right. You know, and that was one reason that I got into assembling the images because I saw that as a form of evidence mm -hmm. that, not all societies have been male dominated, you know, that the cultural record actually shows us other things. Right. And there's a huge gap because, you know, we all grew up where there were the cartoons with the caveman clubbing woman over the head and dragging her off by the hair. And so right. this was this, this belief, which is never described as such, but is one right. that all societies were male dominated. The further back in time you go, the worse it was. Right. You know, so and this that, is out and, there in the ether. Yeah. And that any advancement to said societies came from men's activities and and men's input yeah. rather than the whole society evolving together. I, I've seen that interesting argument, too, made by there's a couple of scholars who will say, you know, look, the benefits that women experience now are due to the advancements that men brought about um, through the industrial era, etc., and their lives have been made better because over time we've gone from this extreme, you know, caveman clubbing the woman and dragging yeah. her to this enlightened world we live in now. That, that's the doctrine. Mm -hmm. And so as a result of that, see, this was also something that was very implicated in colonial ideology because they were telling 
a settler woman in North America, oh, you have a really good deal because look how bad the native women have it. Look, they're just drudges. They're just working all the time. And there was never any coverage of the fact that there were medicine women, there were female elders and women's councils, there were female chiefs, there were all these structures of female authority based on the fact of women's contribution, based on the economic resources that women controlled Mm -hmm. in those societies. Mm -hmm. You know, so we were given a very slanted story, which was a racist and a colonial ideology, but it was in the service also of patriarchy to make white women think, oh, you know, you have a better deal. You know, this, this is a superior system and especially Christianity as being a superior religion because women get the best deal of anybody in Christianity. (laughs) <laughs> you know, so so we have our some of our scholars like Matilda Jocelyn Gage, who was in the first wave of feminism, really had to bust those myths. Yeah, you know, because she could see how how heavily implicated the clergy was, right, churchmen, yeah. in setting up not just the colonization of women in the economic or the political way, which is something we we can see if you look at it with any honesty, but also internalizing, internally colonizing women's consciousness to Indeed. police themselves and each other. Yes. Could you could you say her name again and what era when, when Yes, she was Matilda the... Jocelyn Gage. So G-N-G-E. when Yeah. She was an amazing figure because when you read about Susan B. Anthony and Elizabeth Cady Stanton, there was a third member of that triumvirate and that was Gage. Oh and she's she's really shadowed over and there's a scholar called Sally Rush Ragnar who you should also have on. Uh, who Sally did, Rush Wagner? Yeah, I can give you that info. Yes. Great. Um, she wrote a book. She basically re-edited and republished Gage's book, which was called Woman, Church, and State. It was published in the 1890s, and it was an extremely wow. radical book because she was critiquing the church, but she was not only, her feminism was multi-layers, what we would now call intersectional. Intersectional, yeah. Because... She was an ally to Native people. The Mohawks actually made her an honorary clan mother of the Wolf oh, Clan. Wow. She, her house was on the uh, Underground Railroad. So she was, starts out with, you know, many of the feminists that were abolitionists. Mm-hmm. And she was for prisoners' rights. She was for labor rights. She, she had it all covered, you know. But she got written out of the history because she broke with Anthony over. Anthony's thing was, we have to have the vote no matter what. And that is everything. Yeah. You know, and so Gage really believed that women should have the vote, but they basically cut her out because Anthony wanted to go ahead and make an alliance with, she wanted to pitch to white women and especially Southern white women and the temperance movement and to have a much more conservative feminism in order to get the vote across, you know, across the barrier. Hmm. But by doing so, you know, she laid down really harmful patterns, you know, it's this continual racialized divide yes, between yeah. women that we're still dealing with today, you know. Mm-hmm. So Gage mm-hmm. was 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 uh, on another view from that. Anyway, her book really talked about a lot of things that were taboos, like, for example, sex trafficking, like, um, wow, you know, just so many different subjects and, and her critique of the church. And she really wrote one of the first women's histories book, history books. Hmm. Because, you know, she was trying to document the ancient priestesses, the matriarchate, as she called it. You know, she she had done a lot of reading and research and was and the witch hunts. She wrote about the witch hunts. Oh, wow. And none of this. I mean, she was like so she was a century before her time. Yeah. You know, and 
so then she she just kind of goes down the memory hole. Yeah. You know, so yeah. I don't even remember how we got started talking about gauge. <laughs> well, that's fine. The, the memory hole, though, is really important because that's kind of what both Don and I are, are about with this podcast is that there's so much that yeah. goes down the memory hole that was there that when you then yeah. find it or uncover it, people act as if you've just made it up. Right. Somehow I know. just created this character out of nothing. Whole yeah. cloth, yeah. We, we were yeah. talking about doctrines, doctrinal mm. beliefs. Right. Yeah. Right. Yes. And that's how we got onto it. Indeed. Indeed. But I um, interrupted uh, Sean originally when we, when we first signed on. Oh, and you goodness. were asking about uh you were asking about the um the history of the website and now facebook page and how it started before. oh right yeah and the there archive were, and yeah, we were doing a bio archive. yeah what, <laughs> what things were like that. really at the time this started this exciting yeah. world that existed then kind of paralleling what's happening now okay so so what happens is this i'm i'm reading everything that i can lay my hands on and it's the early 70s and i meet donna deach who is making a, one of the first feminist documentaries. Mm-hmm. And she wanted to have a section on women's history. So I went down to Venice and we went through all the university libraries taking slides. And I was not at all oriented to photography at that point. You know, I was really mm-hmm. more of a scholarly person. But I wound up with this collection of maybe 300, 350 slides that are like the seedlings for the Suppressed Histories archives. Mm. And I started doing slideshows because I, I discovered very quickly after having done a few slideshows like this in feminist bookstores that the impact of seeing the images was far more than the sum of its parts. You right. can stand there and recite facts. You can tell people about history. You can even describe archaeological finds. But it's the gut-level reaction of seeing images that differ so fundamentally from what we are shown as women or even as women's power, mm-hmm. you know? And so when you see a priestess in Dahomey doing a really dynamic trance dance, you see the power. You don't have to have it described to you. It's a gut level feeling. Right. And you, and you, you immediately recognize this is something different. This is something different from the posed feminine. That, you know, we are so conditioned by advertising and movies and novels and all of this media that we have, including the media that passes for history, to have these very narrow, circumscribed ideas about what woman can be. And then you see, okay, we have medicine women. We have women warriors. We have the ancestral icons of all these different societies, ancient and and the modern indigenous societies. Our whole worldview shifts you know it kind of rocks off the foundations they laid for it as soon as you see there's something else out there so that was where i i moved over to the idea of teaching with images so that you could show people and it was really kind of interesting because over and over i would do these slideshows women's power and global perspective and the same question always was why have we not been shown any of this why don't we know this you know, I mean, I didn't have to convince them because they could see it. You know, it's it's not just a set of ideas. It's actually an experience and you're 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 experiencing other realities that women have lived. Which have been withheld from us in a very systematic right. way. Right. And resonate more with us than the um, the constructed reality that has been fed to us for yeah. all our lives. That's right. Max, yeah. what first triggered you to, to see, like, what 
unlock the idea that there was this history that had been suppressed? What, I wanted what opened the door for you. I had well, you know, when I went to college. I mean, my whole life I had had experiences. It's like, why are things like this? You know, mm-hmm. why do women behave like this? Why do men behave like this? Why, you know, all all the conventions of you know my Midwestern working class upbringing. Mm. And, and and seeing how it was out there. Where are you from? West Chicago. Okay. Oh, really? Chicago yeah. represent. I, uh, yeah, I well, actually, it's a sub. It's a little railroad town. It's not the West Side. <laughs> yeah, yeah, no. You know, I I lived uh, for sixteen years in the Chicago area. So. Yeah, yeah. So, um, where was I? Just what opened the door for you in the? Oh yeah, you know, I wanted to because of the of the intense patriarchy. And, and the contempt for women that I see, and the violence that I saw acted out everywhere around me. I wanted to understand, is there any place on the planet where women have been free? That's my organizing okay. principle. Mm. Where are, find the women. Where are free women? Where are, where is women's power and women's authority? Mm-hmm. You know, are there cultures where women are not colonized? Right. And so that was what I set out. And, you know, that one anthro professor did me a favor in a way because he really framed it up for me. This is what's out here. This is how they're going to they're going to pitch it to you. And let's see if there's something that that will, will falsify those premises. Right. And so I went looking for matriarchy because, you know, the matrilineal and that was the starting point. And then, mm-hmm. you know, this becomes a broadened question because it's not just matrilineality but then there's matrilocality and sex egalitarian and you know what if society is organized on the basis of sister brother rather than husband wife what can if you a, can you explain a few of those concepts matrilineality yeah so matrilineal know. means the descent line or even just the social identity the name the belonging is through the mother mm-hmm. and the reason that's significant you know, because you have those two options, through the mother, through the father. Actually, there are more because you could have bilateral society. But the reason it's significant for sexual politics, matrilineality, is you do not have to authenticate fatherhood. If you're going to base your social system on patrilineage, then you have to know who the father is. And the only way you can do that is by controlling women's bodies. Right. Women's movement, women's sexuality, women's social space right Right. and so um that control that's 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 the sexual double standard of patriarchy you know men can be in public space women cannot all these ideas of what's respectable and what is shaming are all in the service of making sure that you know who the father is Mm -hmm. and there's a african-american proverb mama's baby papa's maybe oh okay you can't know for sure in fact, this even applies in in biology. The scientists were all assuming, oh, yes, you know, the male bird controls the female bird and he ensures that, you know, the, the fertilized eggs are his offspring and, and the female bird are just these subjugated beings, just like women, right? And then they started looking at the genome of the eggs right. and they were and watching more closely the bird's behavior and they saw that the women were actually sneaking around. The bird yes. women. <laughs> the, the bird females, yes. The yeah. females were, sneak, were sneaking around and having sex all they wanted. You know, it was just like they, they had to be covert about it. So there right. was some male domination there. Yeah. But it was and like, actually, the, the, the female birds were, were having sex in, that they wanted to have. Yeah. And, this, and the science of that actually favors uh, that kind of behavior because there is, I remember reading a study about human beings that a woman 
in a in a uh, monogamous relationship is 30% more likely to get pregnant from an outside affair than she is from her own husband. What? Really? Wow. Wait, yeah. so wait, now is this, you're saying this is from 30%, this, from 30% a fertility standpoint, yeah. that, she's, that if she's in monogamous, that she's more likely to be more fertile to an outside relationship to yes. put it in scientific terms. Okay. Indeed. Yes. Yeah. Oh, you, you got to post the link to that. I okay. That. I'll find it and post it. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So, I mean, the, the the biology of of nature actually supports that kind of behavior in females. Sure. Well, I think it's everybody's better off. You get you get much more uh, diversity, genetic right? diversity, indeed. Right. I indeed. mean, male control is actually maladaptive. Yes. You know, put it in very simple terms. Indeed. Right? Well, we're going to have so, to have the patriarchy strikes back moment coming up here. <laughs> so. And here I am thinking of putting that on a T-shirt. Matri- uh, patriarchy is maladaptive. I love that. Yep. Yeah. Yeah. I came up with that. Okay. So, so here's, here's the, here's a basic point. If you have a society that's based on the blood kinship, everybody knows who the kin is. You don't have to go through these, all these, you know, contortions in order to determine fatherhood. You just have it. It's everybody knows who the mother is and who the sisters and brothers are. Mm -hmm. And so you have sister brother as the bond, not husband wife, which is a legal term. It's a legal relation. It's not a blood relation. Right. Okay. And it involves those dynamics of control that we know as patriarchy. Mm-hmm. When you have those those sister brother kinships, you also have what we call usually, you know, this is we're talking overall patterns. You have what is known as social motherhood. So it's not just a nuclear family with a mom and, and then the kids who she's com- completely responsible for in her solitary way for the ongoing care of. Right. You have all the sisters and all the brothers caring for all the children. So, you know, it's it's broader than that. And then you've got basically generational layers of caregiving that are going on because there's also the senior generations and all mm-hmm. the aunties and mothers, grandmothers yeah. are also involved in the care. And so it means that you're maximizing survivability and well-being by doing that. Could you say more about the well-being part? I think that is really interesting. We look at mm-hmm. culture, we have issues in terms of male... Oh patterns of violence and things of that sort. What is sure. it like in a different, in, a, in this different kind of structure? Right. And even, even before we look at violence, well-being just on the level of you're getting fed, you're getting looked after, you're not falling into the fire because somebody mm-hmm. just caught you by your diaper and dragged you over, you know, sort of like, mm-hmm. I mean, you've got, uh, there's a, a primatologist, Sarah Hurdy, who put out a really important book called Mothers and Others. And she's really talking there about how the elder female generation is the one who is actually maximizing survivability for their daughter's children. Yes. Okay. This is among primates. We're not even talking about human society only. So there are the, all these kinds of dynamics. Also within these kind of more broad-based kin groups, you have more of a tendency to have a communitarian relationship to land and household, you know? And so sometimes they're longhouse societies and other times you might have people living you know, in humpies and, and little small huts and things like that. But that's not really the crucial part of it as much as it is the ethos of we belong to each other, we care for each other, you know, we have a collective interest in our mutual survival and yeah. care. Yeah. Okay, so that's part of what I'm calling social motherhood. And so the importance of elders is part of that. And then some other matricultural patterns that I would wrap into all of this is you are going to see Ceremonial leadership by women, medicine women, 
uh, female seers, all kinds of you know healers, different kinds of professions of power that women engage in, not only men. It's not sequestrated over to one side or the other, but you have a strong representation from women. Mm-hmm. Relaxed gender gender roles, and some of the more egalitarian societies on the planet, it's nothing for a man to put down what he's doing, come over and pick up the kid, right, and and care for the kid, or for the woman to be outside shopping banana leaves while the man's inside with the baby strapped on his back cooking. You know, mm-hmm. there's a mm-hmm. there's a great book about this uh, chopsticks always come in pairs by Shan Shan Du, and she's talking about Southeast Asia and societies there where there is this very easy exchange so that maybe that maybe people think oh this is women's work and that's what men's work but they do not put a a rigid barrier right between them so that you can cross over and you see that in a lot of native north american societies women are perfectly capable of going out and hunting you know or men are out there hunting and they're cooking their food or sewing their torn sand their their moccasin Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. and so can you you give us some examples of kind of cultures that are like that that would be a good example of this kind of more gender egalitarian framework? You know, the gender egalitarianism varies a lot, but there are quite a few uh, indigenous societies that have this in some degree or another. So like I've read about societies in Alaska, where you would have this interchange of ability to do quote unquote men's work and quote unquote women's work, you know, Mm -hmm. that anybody could do. You know, and and so that's one place where that's really prominent. I mean, we could go off into a whole thing there, yeah. but I don't have a list here of those right in mm-hmm. front of me. But um, so anyway, this- the gender roles are not rigid. That's that's the principle because rid- why why are gender roles why why do rigid gender roles come into being? I would contend that they are intended to enforce a patriarchal order. Mm-hmm. They are intended to enforce male descent lines and control of female sexuality. And so they, they enforce this across all levels so that there's this male status and this female status. If you're not worried about authenticating patron lines, then you don't need to do that. Yeah. And you can also have all kinds, I mean, there, there, people can be relaxed about uh, homosexuality, trans categories, no stigma mm-hmm. on sex, sexuality, uh, not not a big hang up about virginity, which is very much of a patriarchal obsession. And yeah. divorce is easy. Nobody's really helped by making divorce really difficult. Yeah. If you have your survival based in your own kin group, you don't need. I mean, women do need protections in a patriarchal society because they can invest, you know, 20, 30, 40 years of their life. And all of a sudden they're out on their ear right. and they mm-hmm. don't have a house. They don't have an income. You know, there's all these these dynamics. If you're working in a kinship-centered society that is not based on male dominance, then it doesn't really matter because the divorce, it's really up to the two parties. Mm-hmm. And, and so, you know, in a matricultural society, the man goes back to his kin. The woman remains with her kin. There are no homeless children. There right. are no bastards because right. that it's not set up that way. Right. And yeah. so the final is just that we're talking about cooperative societies where non-aggression is a principle. Yeah. Speaking broadly, of course. Can yeah, we, and the the, Sorry, the yeah the 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 idea of um, it, I really think it's tied in with with economic resources as well too because oh, yeah. you know when you're when you're when you're closely guarding your patriliny. Uh, patrilineal line, then you are sort of sequestering those resources for a much smaller social unit. 
Very good where, point. Yeah. Whereas when you're, you know, when the land is held in common, then there is less of an economic um, hit when one little tiny family unit changes form. Yeah. Because really because point. control of property is very strongly co- correlated with patriarchy. Yes, yeah. You know, the, the property element. And you can even look at this, you know, in terms of the way class systems, if you're measuring who's patrilineal and who's matrilineal, you'll see often it's the elite groups. It, typically, it's the elite groups that are patriarchal. Mm-hmm. And typically, it's the commoners or the indigenous people who have a mother rights system. Yeah. So look at the Romans. What do they call the, the, the elite noble class? Patricians. Right. Those of right. the father. Right. And the others are called the plebeians, those of the people. Right. So you've got that, that differentiation laid out very, very clearly. That ends part one of our episode. Up next, part two, where we discuss matriarchy, patriarchy in the world of antiquity. Thank you for listening to the 34 Circe Salon. So